This is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Yes, and we're going to be talking about Sunset Boulevard, a movie from 1950 starring Buster Keaton. (laughs) Starring? He's he's clearly the the big... (laughs) He's the big star in this picture. Do not let Gloria Swanson and William Holden and Max von Stromheim hear yeah. that. It's weird he's not like the biggest one on the poster. I just, I'm not sure who his agent is, but we're going to have to oh get that corrected gosh. immediately. Oh my gosh, yes. Oh, shoot. What a movie. Yep. Sunset Boulevard, 1950, directed by Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. And um, like you said, starring uh, William Holden and Gloria Swanson. And Eric von Stroheim. Stroheim, I said it wrong, but yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's an amazing movie, and I've seen it, gosh, at least five or six times. Wow, wow. So, Do you watch it for Jack Webb as a young man? Oh my gosh, wasn't he great? That was. Uh, it was like I saw him, and I was like, I... That looks so familiar to me. I couldn't place him until after the movie. I looked it up, and it's you Jack can Webb. only tell him from the nose, I think. Um, and in this movie, we'll talk about a lot of. There's a lot of trivia that's interesting. There are a lot of things that make this. If I'm using meta right, it's mm-hmm. very meta. Mm. Um, in terms of who's starring in it, in terms of their own history. And we can talk about all that later because the story itself, when you watch it and you don't know any of that, it is so powerful. Mm. Um, the other stuff adds layers. but So things like Jack Webb are just interesting because he was a young star getting going. And he was cast by Billy Wilder and this was a big movie. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was nominated for, I think, thir- 12 or 13 Oscars. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Hollywood reacted to it positively then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At least well, some of them. Well, as Rose right. always says, Hollywood loves to talk about itself, oh, good or bad. Yes. <laughs> it's about me, 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 me. <laughs> and I believe we're seeing that in this uh, movie. Yes. Right. <laughs> no question. No question. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, so so what, what is this movie about? So this <laughs> movie, it's funny because... Um, let me ask this question first. Have Had you seen this movie before? No, I had not. This was a first, and it was a surprise to me. It's not what I thought it was. Um, uh-huh. What did I think it was? I don't even know. Yeah. It was like I thought it might have been some kind of a noir. I was expecting like a noir uh, detective kind of a thing, like a... Double indemnity sort yeah, of something a... something like that. Type. Right, yeah. right. Because we did talk about that long ago. Mm-hmm. We could put the link in the show notes. Sure. and um, That's more straightforward. And yeah, and it started out like that. You know, it starts out with a a guy in a pool, <laughs> floating dead in a pool. Floating. Right? And, and I'm like, like, okay, so here we've got our murder mystery, you know. And, and you've uh, got the voiceover from William Holden, who's, you know, very kind of deadpan while he's delivering some of these comments. And he says... One of my favorite lines, the poor sap, he always wanted a pool. And there's the guy floating face <laughs> mm-hmm. down in the pool. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, so you see that, and then you go back six months, mm-hmm. and you see William Holden's character, who is in big financial trouble. He's a writer. No one's buying what he's writing. He's writing screenplays, mm-hmm. and um, his car is going to be repossessed. He's hiding it in other parking lots. He's having to you know, evade the people who are looking for him as he's driving around. And when he's doing this, he winds up pulling into a big old garage for a big old house that looks abandoned. And as he's coming out and making sure that nobody followed him down the driveway, because it's behind big hedges and all this stuff, he finds out the house is not abandoned. An imperious voice calls him and says, well, come up here. You're late. And he's like, oh, no, you don't understand. I And a butler ushers him in and says, upstairs. And he keeps trying to explain. And then he finds himself involved in something I think that really sets the tone. Of <laughs> <laughs> they think he's an undertaker and he's there to perform a funeral for a monkey. A chimpanzee, I assume. And um, there's a famous film star. He says, wait, I know you. You look familiar. You, you're Norma Desmond. You used to be big. Hmm. And he's like, she's like, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. <laughs> One of the famous lines, and you hear famous line after famous line in this movie. And, um, and she finds out he's a, first of all, he clears it all up and you're just like, this is weird that she's got this pet monkey that they're having an actual funeral for. And she's dressed in this way that's very bizarre. Um, it's normal, but it's just slightly exotic. Yeah, you know? it, how interesting, you know, the, the monkey, and it is exotic. And in in my lifetime, you know, growing up in the 80s, um, and when I think of a monkey and Hollywood, I think about um, Michael Jackson and his chimpanzee. <gasps> you know, he I forgot had one. about that. Yeah. Wow. And he was. Oh my gosh. Also, I think of his life, and yeah, what we now know of it. And you look at this movie and go, "Okay, it wasn't maybe as far off as it could have been." <laughs> oh. Yeah. Anyway, so um, but yeah, so that's kind of a in depth of the introduction. But basically, what happens is she discovers he's a screenwriter, and she's written a screenplay because she's going to get back into the movies. She was a silent film star. And, of course, it's 1950. Nobody cares about that. As she says, it's all Technicolor and voices, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Right. We didn't, we didn't need voices. Need, we had faces. Yeah, we had faces, right. <laughs> Another famous line. We don't need dialogue. Right. Yep. And so, yes, and I'm doing all this from memory, so I'm mm. sure I'm slightly off on everything. But <laughs> so what happens is, is she hires him to go through and clean up the screenplay so it'll be suitable for her to send it off to Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah who is a real film director. He really appears in this movie and um, as a part. Yeah. Um, and, and Joe Gillis, too, he, he feels like he kind of um, directs her into that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then he realizes yeah. that she's kind of done that to him, I guess. But it's it's like, you know, he, he is desperate for cash, and he's like, I think this might turn into something lucrative, right? That's so, a good point. Yeah. He is deliberately trying to take advantage of her. And he goes, if I can get a couple weeks out of this, I'll have enough money to pay off my car. Yeah, he says then something I can like, you know, keep going. I'm expensive, like $500 a week. Yeah. And she's like, you know. Money's nothing. Right. 
And later at one point he says, you know, they were making $18,000 a week, these silent film stars, and there was no income tax then. Wow. Yeah. So when she's saying later in the movie, she's talking about how she's rich and money is no object in this huge house full of very exotic stuff and a pipe organ and a big tile dance floor, <laughs> all these things. Yeah. And, um, and, she's a, and a, talking, picture, a picture or two of herself. Oh my gosh, all those pictures are really Gloria Swanson when she was young. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, the big painted portrait, all the, because Gloria Swanson, who plays Norma Desmond, was maybe at one time the biggest female film star ever. Hmm. Um, she would get 17,000 pieces of mail in a week. Wow. Film, mm -hmm. Fan mail. Mm -hmm. um, that's enough trivia. But anyway, so, <laughs> but she, um, yeah, so at one point she's saying, I have a million dollars. I also have oil fields. I have all this other stuff. I have stocks and bonds. I've got a Malibu property. I mean, she's loaded. So she's got everything she could possibly want. But what you soon discover is what she wants is to make that comeback. She only feels alive when she's performing and also in the community of the film people. Mm -hmm. And also... Her vanity. She was huge and she was in her teens and 20s and that's been taken away. And so mm. now that's that was her identity. Um, and the, so the whole movie plays out from there. What is Joe going to do? Is Joe, can Joe fulfill his goal without getting sucked into her world? Can he pull away? Can she get what she wants? Can she get her film come back? It doesn't seem likely, but you know, she gets mm -hmm. a meeting with Cecil B. DeMille. She gets, you know, so how is this all going to go? And as they go along, Joe has a real opportunity to do a screenplay with someone. And this someone is a young lady hmm. who's his age, who you can see the difference in him. It's like night and day. So is the real world going to pull him away? How, what are his standards going to be? Will he hang out for money? to pay off his car or whatever else. And so all this stuff is coming into play and these emotions and the people are fascinating in how they push and pull at each other. Mm, yeah. You know? Yes. Especially those three, um, uh, Joe Gillis and Norma Desmond and mm -hmm. Max Von Mayerling. <laughs> the butler. Yes. The butler. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's funny, he is, Max is always there and just a silent presence who will step forward and say, I have moved all your things here. <laughs> I have done this, or Madam wants you to do that. And he acts like he's a servant, but he's facilitating all the things Norma wants. I mean, in, in a way beyond being a servant. He's kind of directing things also so that Norma gets what she wants. Yeah, I, I think we realize that pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, uh, you know, Joe, all the stuff from his apartment shows up. <laughs> he's like, wait <laughs> a minute, I didn't room. agree to move in? What the heck are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. he's gone to sleep for the night there because it's too late for him to go home. And, he has and no he's car. afraid to drive his car because he'll get <clears throat> caught. Mm -hmm. And he wakes up and everything from his apartment has been brought while he was asleep. Yeah. Yeah. And the bill paid and the old rent paid and everything. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's, yeah. I think, the intro. And this is, uh, it's a film noir 
mm-hmm. that it's very dark. And you're just like, I don't know how anything good can happen. I want it to happen. Um, and, But it's also an indictment of Hollywood and an indictment of enabling and, and the search for fame through things that are ethereal like that. Don't you think? I do. I do. Um, it's like, you know, putting your, putting your faith in the wrong things or the the top of your mountain is incorrect. (laughs) You know, um, yeah. Like, you know, this, this star, uh, loved the fame and, um, all the success that she had. And it's like the entire, I think it was Cecil B. DeMille, in the movie, he said something like 30 million fans have given her the brush. Isn't that enough? And it's like the, so the, the entire industry had moved on and the audience is now looking, their attention is drawn somewhere else other than this person and how she is dealing with that. It's gotta be incredibly difficult on anybody. Um, Oh yeah. But she is um, really taking it hard. Right, and, and when uh, you think, but, but not only that, but she's being deceived, as we can get into. Um, right, yeah. yeah. So that's um, now. Of course, this is an older movie, but we've done our best without spoilers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, now we're moving on. Right, right. Well, because one of the things that I was struck by watching it again is, you know, think of all the young stars we've seen crash and burn. Yeah, they found fame too soon. It's kind of a the thing of, gosh, what. Well, it was a Stephen King book, maybe. It might have been The Stand, where somebody's talking about if you hand somebody a gun, it's different than somebody who's had to learn uh, martial arts mm. and work up to it and learn the discipline themselves. They're they're given too much power too soon, mm. and they abuse it and don't use it wisely. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, this is the thing of with fame, right? You, it just handed to somebody young like that. And um, at one point, Cecil B. DeMille talking about Norma Desmond does say a dozen press agents all working double time can do terrible things to the human soul Hmm. because he knows she's so addicted to this and think of tiktok stars and um Mm. all the social media and all these very young people who become so important what happens later when 30 million fans give them the brush off right right yeah, and I mean, we're, we're talking about someone here who is, um, you know, 50 years old or so. Um, right. Because there's a line in there when he says, you know, 50 isn't so bad unless you think you, you want to be 25. And it yeah. isn't, isn't that the case? You know, uh, there's, you know, stressors that are brought upon us or that we have. And it so much of it is caused by wanting the situation to be different rather than acceptance. Um it's like, you know, I, I want to be a 25-year-old, yet I am a 50-year-old. And um, right. that is driving her nuts. Um, but, you know, in, in our society, again, you know, growing up in the 80s and then having kids through the 90s, um, I've seen a lot of, like, the Disney Channel stars are someone to look at. Mm-hmm. And how many of them crashed and burned after they grew out of their teens? Um, some of them remain successful and seem fairly stable to me anyway, but what do I know? You know, I, I see only mm-hmm. what, uh, the media shows me, but, um, but I, I just feel for a lot of those that, uh, didn't seem to come through that experience well. 
and um, right. as a young person still, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's just this superficiality, um, kind of in the right place at the right time. Um, you you become huge, you know. It, it's almost a random thing, kind of. You know, their luck is involved always, right? Because there are so many people trying to break in. Um, right. But then you get really famous. And then when things move on, um, it's just got to be just brutal, you know, for you to show up in a, at a party or something where five years ago you would have been the center. And now people like, hey, weren't you in something? You know, <laughs> that's got to right. be so tough on somebody. Well, and it's how do you move on gracefully with what's the new reality? Mm, exactly. And, and that's I mean, what we all deal with, celebrities or not, right? Right. Um, dealing in, in our own lives. Yeah, it's a funny thing. Um, thinking of that, <laughs> what just sprang to mind was I was um, talking to a deacon after Mass last week and you know, I just, oh, hi, I'm Julie Davis. And he goes, oh, everybody knows Julie Davis. And I was like, <laughs> Well, that's that's nice of you. And I was thinking, that's because his wife and I were involved a lot in a lot of church activities probably 10 to 15 years ago together. He knows me from that. Mm. You know, the things I've been involved in have been kind of gradually, I'd been less involved and less involved because that's just kind of the nature of the things, different retreats and stuff. And then after the pandemic, I was like, you know, I think um, other people can take over this Beyond Canaan retreat. I think it's time to, for the new set of people to do these things. And so it's funny, I've kind of been, by God, I would say, placed in a different role. Mm. You know, my mom's living with us, so that takes more time. Um, I'm doing writing and stuff. and But, you know, blogging, that used to be a big thing. And my blog was a little popular and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I look at the numbers now, I'm like, wow, either it's just my blog, or I think it's most blogs, you know, the numbers have been gradually dropping. And I'm like, but that's okay, because I'm kind of being put into the, remember when you were a private citizen? (laughs) Nobody cared that you blogged, and nobody cared that this and that. And so what I find myself doing is having suddenly this interesting relationship with the receptionist at my dentist, who's becoming a Catholic. And I'm the one she knows who she asks questions of or um, different people that I meet. And it's all turning into more regular life. And I could, I was never a big fish, even in a little pond, but I could be upset because I'm like, wow, my blog is so important. Blah, 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 blah. Because, but it was nothing. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. And just your role in life changes, and you just kind of have to look at it and accept it and go, I'm the age I am, I'm involved in whatever way I am. You have to be able to kind of look at that and not get upset, because that's not what you were. Yeah, yeah. It's something you did, but it's not you. Yeah, you're making me think about social media as a whole, and how um, somebody nowadays can get famous and then forgotten within like two weeks. You know what I mean? Um, it's brutal out there. Um, you know, Twitter and, and stuff. Um, you know, we we have people getting famous for no reason whatsoever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, look at the Kardashians, right? It's like, Oh my gosh. You know, so (laughs) I don't understand that. (laughs) Right. And then everybody trying to, you know, this idea that of an influencer 
and and things. You know, you can you can go. I imagine you can be an influencer and you're making money on social media, and then next week it's done for whatever reason. I mean, you could be canceled or you could be forgotten. Right? They've mm-hmm. you know the whole audience, the thirty million or whatever, have changed their view to the next one. And uh, have forgotten you and, and how brutal that is. Um, right. But yet and at the same time, like you're saying, you know, there's a season for everything. And um, that's what, you know, God tells us. There's, there's times for everything. And we're in different periods of time in our lives as we move forward. And that's as it should be. You know, things don't stay the yeah. same. So it's like, what do you put your trust in? Because when you look at Norma... She's not aged in body. She's still got a good figure. Her face is very pretty. Or, you know, it's what it was. Um, and youthful looking and everything. I mean, she goes through this sequence where she's trying to get in shape and they're doing all the things of the time to get rid of wrinkles and everything. But she doesn't need it. Um, yeah. That's when Joe says, you know, there's nothing wrong with being 50 unless you want to be 25. Face reality. and But she's aged in her mind. Mm-hmm. She's stuck back in time mentally. Her, t- her, she's not moved on. She's put her trust in something that's old. Right, right. And so mm. we have to, every so often, these little checks will come across us. And it's the thing of going, oh, right. It's mm-hmm. like, I mean, maybe I've told this story before when my husband a few years ago said, um, because well, we're older middle-aged i said no I, i'd love to think that too because mentally we're still fine and everything's good and i'm like but if i'm middle-aged i'm gonna be 120 sometime and i don't want that <laughs> <laughs> my goodness yeah so as you're speaking um you, you're making me realize how much harder it is for women in hollywood probably than the men right because, oh yeah um, I think- Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it is it is the idea that her entire self worth was tied into her image, mm-hmm. and um, you know, so Hollywood is gonna is tending, you know, even today, you know, is tending towards okay, who's the the young beautiful woman that people will come see, and. It- yeah, go ahead. They've always done that. Yeah, that's what I, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. But I think this is a commentary on that as well. Oh, so, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. so it's not only um, just the fact that she's older and has been forgotten, but for a woman in particular, um, perhaps her forgotten quicker. Um, because yeah, I don't know how old William Holden was in this movie, but um, you know he was a star for a long time after this. Right, but he'd hit a rough patch, mm-hmm. so this movie was good for him. It kind of re-energized him. And what I was going to say is, I mean, I know I'm the one who said, we'll talk about trivia later, but one of the real-life things that kind of reflects what you're talking about is Gloria Swanson mm-hmm. playing Norma Desmond. Uh, the makeup man said she's not, she doesn't look 50. Well, <laughs> she'd taken very careful care of her face and everything, even though she silent movies weren't around anymore. And um, Gloria Swanson argued that somebody like Norma would have been obsessed with her appearance and done her utmost not to look old. And that talked around the makeup designer and Billy Wilder. So what they did instead was make William Holder 
made up to look older than he actually was. Hmm. So their ages didn't look quite as different. Okay. Um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, mm-hmm. she understood the mentality of the person she was portraying. She herself was not Norma Desmond. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I know Roger Ebert said that, and maybe she could be that way, but she had moved on when she saw that silent films were were going on, and she couldn't. She tried making a talkie or two. She went on and was doing theater and TV. She wasn't that desperate person. They asked some other people first, who were more kind of like the person they wanted, and they were all like, "Oh no, I'm not doing that." And she was interested in it. Hmm. Um. Yeah, very interesting. She did have, yeah, she did have a little of the Norma Desmond in her in that her friend, the person who recommended her to Billy Wilder and then told her she should go for the part was George Cooker. I don't know if you know his name. He was a big director. He he did so many good movies. And he was all known as the woman's director. Women just shone in his movies. And um, he told her she should do it. And she was like, but they want me to do... Um, a tryout for it. I don't want to do a tryout. I'm Gloria Swanson. <laughs> and he said, if they want 10, you do 10. This is the part you will always be remembered for. And so she did it and he was right. Wow. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. funny. There's the bit of reflection of some of that stuff. And I'm sorry, I did the very thing I said not to do, which <laughs> is, uh, but you see, she understands the role really well. And so that kind of takes it from being the histrionic, over-the-top personality, which Norma Desmond is, into the way that she's able to show us her heart. She's desperate. She's lonely. She's insecure. Mm. She wants What she wants is love. She wants Joe's love. She wants the audience's love. She spurns Max's love, who truly loves her with every fiber of his being, so much so that he sacrifices himself completely for her. Mm. To the point of he was her first husband and had to watch her have two other husbands. And he's her butler now. He was a big director in the movie. I mean, as mm-hmm. he's portrayed in the movie. Yeah, And yeah. he's just now a servant. And he's basically bringing Joe to her because that's what she wants. And he's having to watch all this and still serve her. Hmm. And she doesn't even realize it or appreciate it. No, not at all. She certainly doesn't seem to. But yeah, fascinating. Um, Yeah, it's interesting that they'd want uh, Holden to look older than he was because I I think it'd be be even more effective, I think, to what they're saying if if they were different because she was trying to feel younger, right? Yeah. With William Holden. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't understand that logic, yeah, honestly. Yeah, that's, that's just really mm-hmm. interesting stuff. But, yeah. Because um, that made sense, though, because when you saw him with the young people his age, he always looked a little older He did. He looked, he looked older than them, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and he did have somewhat of a career, and, uh, you know, so he had written some stuff before. Right. And... Um, you know, there's another indictment of, of Hollywood there when he first met, I think her name was Betty. Yeah. And she said something about, he, he was he was shopping a, a script that she read and didn't like when she first met him. And um, 
she said something about um, she didn't like it because she knew she had heard his name before and had expected depth, depth basically. <laughs> and he, he and he said, well, I, I used to write like that, but now I'm trying to make money. Yeah. <laughs> and and there's the indictment, you know, for Hollywood, you know, where she says, you know, the pictures have gotten small too. That's kind of another mm-hmm. meaning of that as well. That's um, right. Yeah. Well, and she herself, it's an interesting contrast because she herself early on went through a little bit of the sort of thing that Norman Desmond's going through when she's trying to make herself look younger and different. So she'll fit this part of Salome, which is the screenplay she wrote, and she wants to play this girl, right? Well, Betty says she's third-generation um, film family. Her grandmother was a stunt woman for Pearl White, which is a name people would know from, I instantly thought of Westerns. I, hmm. I don't think I've ever seen Pearl White, but I know just that much. Um, her parents, you know, did things in the movies, too, and then there she was, and they said, oh, you could be a great actress if you just get your nose fixed. Mm. So she did, and it cost $300, which would have been a lot at the time, and I'm <laughs> sure it was painful. Yeah. She goes, then, I did it again, and screen uh, tryouts, and she goes, then the uh, nose was great, but the acting, not so good. <laughs> so, But what she did mm. instead, she says, so, so I'll become a, I worked my way up. Mm-hmm. I helped out, I you know, swept offices, I did this stuff, now I'm a reader of scripts, I want to write. So she's very patiently t- accepting what they said. She wants to stay connected with it, but she's realistic. Mm-hmm. And that's also what you see from uh, when he's at the party and the drugstore, which are some of my favorite moments because they remind us there's a world and a normal life outside of that big house, which just the house itself is almost a character and it kind of takes over. Uh, you feel like if Norma Desmond had had to live in a regular house, that would have helped a little bit. <laughs> Go yeah, to the grocery so. store or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but so they're cracking jokes about Hollywood. And and um, Jack Webb's character, her who's Betty's fiance, he's off doing stunt work on a Western out in the desert. They've got this realistic viewpoint, but they're not quitting. Mm. They're still trying to make it. Because they want to be involved with that creative process. Yeah, they seem. I mean, Jack Webb just seemed so happy. You know, the, I know that, he's that the greatest character. Guy. Yeah, just Artie just was great. that his right. name? Yeah. Yeah, and then um, you know Betty too. Betty was super optimistic. Mm-hmm. It was like you know she was twenty two years old, right? So she hadn't yeah. had time to be smashed down by the <laughs> by heartless L.A. I guess. Um, you know, which is, you know, it's like you're seeing the before and after, you know, the, the duels mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Although mm-hmm. Betty's not going to be in front of the camera. Um, you kind of see before she's had uh, 25 years or 30 years in the industry. And then Norma is like the product after, you know, after the system has kind of used her up and moved on. Right. And the difference between them, I think, is that they are having to struggle and mm-hmm. work their way up and learn the business from the bottom up, you know. Mm-hmm. And so then you think of people like um, John Wayne, who was an extra, unnamed in movies before he kind of was able to kind of move his way up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Did we talk about? Did we talk about singing in the rain? Ever? Um, I mean, it's come up, but we have never done an episode on it. Oh, mm-hmm. darn it! Mm-hmm. That would be the perfect one to do. Yeah. 
but in there they mm-hmm. they the two huge stars you know they started off that way too and of course that's just the story they tell and that's the case in a lot of uh, these star stories you'll see oh they did this but the ones who were discovered the way Gloria Swanson was and made rich early you know think of um, as we've discussed how many of them because they didn't have that training for appreciating real life as well as the fantasy that's being spun Mm -hmm. they get caught in the fantasy and that's disastrous and so yeah that's part of the point of the parallel stories and joe is caught between these two worlds he doesn't really ever fall into the fantasy he doesn't want to be part of norma's world but she sucks him in and see here's the thing where she's not she's unaware but she's not unaware because she does try to commit suicide mm, yeah and it's his guilt and pity that makes him give in right yep but of course that's not enough for her either mm. yep it's not yeah she wants him to truly love her and he can't <laughs> yeah and then you know that's that's when you wonder if it's saying that um that you know is is love unattainable in that environment in Hollywood, you know what I mean? With everybody, um, you know, be- between people that are all have these motives, and um, you know, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, <laughs> searching for the right thought here. But you know, to me, there there would never be a perfect situation for Norma. I don't think. Yeah, I, I think it comes down to what what it is that you value. Above all things, right? It, I, I think that a couple could certainly make it if they valued the right things. There are people who were faithfully married. George C. Scott and his wife. Um, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there are people who can do it, but I think they kind of are balanced already and they kind of work on it. Paul Newman and his wife. Mm-hmm. Um and some of these people were actresses in their own right, and I just am blanking on their names. So, But it's the thing of they always kept their feet on the ground. So how do you keep your feet on the ground? And again, it comes back to what do we love? And, you know, I can't help but think of St. Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about all the things. I looked at all the things you made, and they were lovely, but... I loved them for themselves, not for the the one who made them lovely. Yeah, yeah. Where the loveliness came from, and um, and he himself struggled with things like you know he had a um, a mistress and a child, and you know he himself was a sensualist and all the things, and he was very good at what he did. So I'm sure he enjoyed the fame. Mm-hmm. It was very clever, and it's all the stuff that you know you're celebrated for things, and then. When those are taken away, what are we left with? And I think of every person experiences that, and I kind of touched on it a little, talking about my husband and me, but one of the wisdoms of the church is that as we get older, more and more things are taken away. Even if we've got all the money in the world, there's illness. There's loss of people we love. There are all kinds of circumstances that are beyond our control, and what we're supposed to take away from that if you're thinking of it from the what right frame of mind is, um, you know, all the sorrow and loss, those are okay. But we have to remember 
we weren't in control of any of that ever. Mm. It doesn't mean we're not ex- exercising free will and living our lives and, and making our decisions and acting on them. But all the opportunities we were given, all the other things we grasp and hold on to, those were put in our way by the grace of God mm. for us to use. Yep. These are the big lessons, you know. Right, right. Because yeah, the other lesson, hmm? yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, you should put no other God before me, right? Right. Yeah, and and that's 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 it, yeah. And her looking for this love, I mean, this is not what they wrote into the movie, because this is an indictment of Hollywood mm-hmm. and the Hollywood system that chews them up and spits them out and moves on and doesn't care. Right. And what Hollywood could do about it, I don't know, but it's a really um, insightful look at that whole situation. And we ourselves have to be responsible for ourselves or the people around us. Max is doing her such a disservice when he's been <laughs> writing fan letters that she's still getting, asking for things. Yeah, and that's fascinating stuff. So he discovered her, I believe, and then he made her a star, mm-hmm. and then he loves her, right? Because he was her first husband. Right. And then he, I'm assuming then he just feels responsible for her situation because you know just trying to figure out you know why would he do that why would he fall into that he says madam is the greatest actress that was ever born or whatever i think he truly loves her but it's not a healthy love right okay it's um and these days we would call it an enabling love Mm. he can't deny her anything she wants i mean they got divorced and he's are still around even though she's had the two husbands and Joe and who knows what other young man she may have picked up on the way at some point. Yeah. And he can't help it. He loves her to that degree that it's unhealthy for both of them. Yeah. It has to stab him in the heart. He always kind of looks a little sad. I think he does. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's living in deceit, you know, he, he, he's deceiving Norma. Mm-hmm. And then um, Norma's really deceiving herself. But like mm-hmm. you said, she kind of has, at least a piece of her is in reality because she keeps going into despair. She mm-hmm. she she knows that it's not right. And then um, Joe, he's deceiving himself uh, both by, you know, this is worth, this is worth, this situation is worth what it's giving me. And then he's deceiving Betty into thinking that he's, you know, he's just living a normal life. Um, you know, he deceives her and then that kind of comes out and he reveals that to her, but he is completely embarrassed and he knows, you know, with her there, he, he knows for sure that this is not worth it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then decides to move on. But there's all that deceit between all three of those, Max, Joe, and Norma. Yeah. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is um, thinking about both Joe, unless I said this already, Joe and Norma, what they both want is to create. Mm -hmm. He wants Mm -hmm. to write. He craves that creative process because when he's writing with Betty is when we see him fully being himself. Yeah, when he's writing with Betty, not when he's writing Norma's stuff. No. Yeah. 
but he's being his best self. We see him being clever and funny, and he's falling in love with Betty, and um, because he can appreciate for her for who she is, mm-hmm. not for this, um, not for all the things ways she's inadequate, which is the problem with Norma. And um, Norma, of course, she says several times, I've missed you all so much. When she goes to visit Cecil B. DeMille and he leaves her on the set, I've missed all this so much. She tells him, she says it to all the people around her. And it's not just the fans, she just misses being with everybody at the set. Mm. And then at the end, she's like, I've missed you all so much. When she's coming down the stairs, that, oh my gosh, that heartbreaking, but over the top. I mean, it's so, that, that ending on the stairs is so perfect mm. because it's so bizarre <laughs> and over the top and exotic. And she's clearly, as she's going down the stairs, she has descended into madness. We're just watching the trip, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And it breaks our hearts because she's at the same time, we know who she was at the beginning of the movie. Mm. And all she wants is she's saying to them, I've missed this so much. I'm never going to leave. You know, the mm-hmm. set and the people and the wonderful fans out there. Yeah, and yeah. your heart's breaking for her because this is what drove her to these lengths. Aided by Max and, you know, all the other things. Right. Yeah, just, you're right. It, 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 it was stunning to watch. It was mesmerizing. It's just chilling. It's mm-hmm. just magnificent, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, after that was uh, filmed and they cut, she broke into tears and everybody gave her a standing ovation that went on for minutes and minutes. Wow. And then um, Billy Wilder had planned a party. Mm-hmm. So they turned all the lights on and had champagne and a big party because <laughs> it was such a magnificent performance throughout. Wow. Well. See, so the real actress got something. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just, you know, I mean, it's just, it's the perfect ending. Yeah, it sure is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. she's, she's all the way into the, the um, delusion, I guess. Mm-hmm. She's fallen all the way in. And she's happy there. <laughs> right, because that that's what they're yeah. doing when they make a movie. That's it's right. It's a story that you have to be in. Wow, that's, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, what the, that's what they do, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> How amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's just, it's perfection. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just amazing, that wow. ending. Yeah, that's something else. That's something else. So, yeah, um... Let's talk about Buster Keaton and that little group for just the a second. The Waxworks. Yeah. So it's interesting that they uh, were willing to do that, you know, and calling themselves the Waxworks, you know, oh, allowing no, I don't themselves think to be that called that. That was his name for them. Yes. I don't think he ever said that out loud. Who did? I mean, well, Joe didn't say it in front of them. No, but um, I'm sure that they read Max. the script, right? Uh, I'm just guessing. Oh, yeah. oh I see that, what you're you know, saying. I'm they, sorry, the actual actors. Right, the actual actors okay, who chose to be in that must have felt that it was worthwhile, right, to, to do mm-hmm. that. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm assuming that that's how they felt was, um, you know, like they were being called the Waxworks and they were um, – willing to put themselves out there and say, see, see what you, you, 
<laughs> you've discarded us, right? Right. Um, and and this is what you call us, and you all should be ashamed of that. So, you know. Yeah, because that was offered to several other silent film stars who turned it down. Yeah. They would not be part of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, in fact, in terms of talking about it as being a, um, an indictment, okay, so these wax works were her contemporaries. Buster Keaton, uh, Gloria Swanson's contemporaries. Buster mm-hmm. Keaton, who we know and love. Anna Q. Nilsson, who I don't know, and H.B. Warner. But they were playing themselves. And um, then at the end, the gossip columnist who's up there with her, Mm-hmm. Calling it in, going, I don't care. Just don't, don't you just put this up. This is big. That was Hedda Hopper, who I don't know if you've heard of Hedda Hopper before, but she was a famous uh, Hollywood gossip columnist at the mm-hmm. time. So she was also, you know, she was just in it as a bit thing, but she knew what the movie was about. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so they were putting themselves on display. The waxworks were. Yeah, yeah. As. An indictment, and everybody knew this was an indictment. I mean, obviously Cecil B. DeMille did. And uh, Paramount Studios, where this was filmed, did not care. They were fine. People were buying tickets to come see the Daily Rushes at one point. Really? Wow. Because it was (laughs) so popular. But in order to keep um, this indictment of Hollywood quiet... And to get it past the censors also, because things like suicide attempts were not looked on kindly by the censors. Hmm. So um, they only had submitted a few pages of the script at a time to the studio and to the censors. So when it got started, they had to explain the whole story to the people when they're getting them to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the actors and everybody. But when it got started... um, They only had 61 pages of the script Hmm. because they were going through this slow process of sliding everything by them. Hmm. And they had to film it in sequence, which almost is never done. As you know, Uh, Gloria Swanson, it helped her kind of develop her character as it gradually, she's getting crazier and crazier and then the big finale because she could just kind of go along as she was. And her daughter said, okay, now we're getting into trivia a little more. Her daughter said that, because her daughter and Gloria Swanson's mother and Gloria Swanson all lived in a household. And Gloria Swanson stayed in character all the time for the entire shooting time. (laughs) So when they were on the way home after the final scene, Gloria Swanson said, oh, there's just two of us now. (laughs) That third one we left behind. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But... They also called the movie A Can of Beans. They didn't say the real name. They were trying to mm. really hard to keep it from getting out. And A Can of Beans. <laughs> this movie was celebrated, and as you know, we pointed out, it had a ton of Oscars. And they say that if All About Eve's um, Betty Davis hadn't been up against Gloria Swanson, that either one of them would have won. They mm. both do amazing jobs. But um, because they both kind of split the vote, mm-hmm. Judy Holiday won for this comedy that I've seen, and she should not have won, believe <laughs> me. I mean, she was fine, but it wasn't a big deal. But um, everybody knew this was at Hollywood. 
we're looking at all the things that you and I are talking about because those are part of the characters, but it's overall, it is smacking Hollywood on the wrist hard. And so when Louis B. Mayer, uh, the MGM studio head, <laughs> saw mm-hmm. the saw the film, then there was at a preview screening afterwards, he screamed at the director, Billy Wilder, that he should be tarred, feathered, and horsewhipped for bringing his profession into such disrepute. Wow. <laughs> Billy Wilder, who'd made it past the Germans and a lot of other hard stuff, had a two-word answer that I won't quote. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's amazing. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are other movies made yeah. that have uh, pointed out these things about Hollywood, but I don't think there's a better one. Yeah, I can't think of one. But um, but wow, yeah, this is this is something else, you know. And um, Gloria Swanson was magnificent in it. Um, oh my gosh, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. Uh, she Edith Head did the the costumes. Edith Head is one of the most famous costume designers ever, but she actually worked with uh, Gloria Swanson because they wanted the clothes to look super expensive, but just a tiny bit out of date and exotic. Mm. And so then Gloria Swanson brought in a lot of her own accessories and jewelry yeah. to finish it off. Yeah, so that's she, brilliant. She was, you know, it it yeah. reminds you, like, well, William Holden wearing his tuxedo on uh, New Year's Eve. And right. then he goes and sees uh, Jack Webb and Betty. Yeah. That's when we realize, I think, how that he's out of date. You know, that's when it really right. hit. It was a brilliant scene from that, you know, because he takes off his jacket and he's like, uh, almost embarrassed by what he's wearing because it's mm-hmm. it's out of date. Yeah. Well, no, it's the it's the most up to date tuxedo. She just went and oh, bought all these okay. clothes I for him. He looked like. Uh, well, I know everybody else was casual there, but it right. looked to me like an old thing that he was wearing. I know it was a brand new suit, but right. it but just looked to reason- me like the old an old style. The reason it's old is because it's something a 60-year-old, 50-year-old man would be wearing under right, your seat, right. not yeah. his age. Exactly. So it's inappropriate mm-hmm. because it's yeah. too formal. That's right. And certainly for him to be at a drugstore. Um, yeah, because he's having to act too old because he's he's a gigolo. <laughs> you know, at this point, yeah. that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you don't go much further into what else he's doing with Norma, but <laughs> uh, uh, well, yeah. he's really, I think he's really paying, you know, because she loves him. She wants all of it. Right. Um, and how, how effective was it, you know, when they were in the car and she realized that she didn't have any cigarettes and he said, oh, we'll stop at this drugstore and I'll get him. And then the way she hands him money. <laughs> Here. I know. Here's your, here's, here's, you know, whatever. <laughs> and how, and his reaction in taking it and, um, and then his, uh, joy in giving it back to her, not having purchased them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's funny because you can see he hates it, but he's still doing it. And at yeah. that point, no, that's. I can't remember what's going on. I think they were just going out to dinner because isn't that after New Year's Eve where he was going to just move in with Artie for a couple of weeks and break yeah. free and mm-hmm. then she tries to kill herself. Right. So he's like, he oh, I can't back. do this. Yeah. Right. And so he's 
blackmailed by emotionally blackmailed by her Mm. and the thing is is it would have been healthier at that point for him to go ahead and leave the break had essentially been made she knew it Mm. but when it worked that was it he was stuck yeah and i don't know much about this kind of thing but i think that's a kind of a classic textbook Mm. example yeah you know you've got you you can't be enabling it and that's essentially what he's doing too mm-hmm. he doesn't know any other way out of it i don't blame him he's got a kind heart at that point but it's just miserable for everyone well and i think this is also the when is it cruel to be kind <laughs> and we've talked about this with max but how much do we lie to somebody about what's true versus just kind of softening a blow yeah you're not helping somebody see what's real you know and yeah giving them this the chance to move on mm-hmm. right this isn't do these pants make me look fat. I mean, mm. this is, you know, where you just kind of like, no, you look great. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, or, you know, oh, your hair looks fine today. Cause what are they going to do about it? Yeah. But, um, it's, it's something deep and, <laughs> and, you know, as we pointed out, Max is the worst on this. Yeah. Cause yeah. he loves her too much. Um, I love the line where, um, when Norman Norma Desmond goes to the set with Cecil B. DeMille mm-hmm. and somebody says, she must be a million years old. <laughs> and DeMille says, I hate to think that where that puts me, you know, I could be her father. Right. Right. Which is a really interesting thing. You know, he, so he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm probably 20 years older than she is, but she's a has been. Well, that's the mental age. Yep. Of her versus him. He's working with young people. He understands how things work. He's still vital and in it. He hasn't been cast off because he could adapt and mm-hmm. shift with to the talkies. And he was filming, that was on the film set of Samson and Delilah. So it was, he was for real. Mm-hmm. Um, still a working director. But it's the thing you pointed out is when your specialty has been passed by, what do you do? And we've seen this also in things like um, the workforce in general. Oh, for sure. That's the business you know, I'm in, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're training people for the future with mm-hmm. computers and robotics and all kinds of nifty things like that. But yeah. that's replaced, those jobs are being are replacing something that's now out of date. So what do the 40 to 50-year-old guys do who were earning a living doing that? Yeah, exactly. We need to give you, them a, they, a way to move on, right? That's what yeah. society needs to do is right. make sure that we supply a way for them to get there. Yeah. Do they adapt? Mm-hmm. Do they re-educate? Do they shift careers? Which is, you know, something else you could do. Yep, for sure. And so Norm is just kind of an encapsulation of that whole thing, too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. the Hollywood thing. Right, right. Being able to adapt and being able to accept. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which, like you said, uh, Gloria, um, what's her name again? Gloria? Swanson. Swanson, right. You're saying that she actually did that and w- was thriving in her new life, quote unquote, at the time. Yeah, she was flipping yep. in New York. She was on mm-hmm. radio when that, because that was the new thing. And then mm-hmm. later TV and she'd been on in theater. And she was hoping that this movie would actually show I can act and be in new movies. But all anyone wanted to do was write different versions of Norma Desmond. And she's like, I've done that. I don't need to do that again. Yes. Good for her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you'll see actresses, um, also actors, but, you know, I, as we've said, this hits actresses harder who were able to continue their careers into old age. I mean, 
uh, Betty Davis, mm-hmm. and uh, was it Joan Crawford and whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yeah, yeah. That was, <laughs> you know, they were still being picked up. And look at these days, you've got Helen Mirren and Meryl Streep mm. and um, Judy Dench. And it's funny, you can see the actresses who are still trying to look younger. I, For one of the movie groups, I had to watch some modern movie with Jane Fonda in it. Oh, and yeah. every time I just looked mm. at her face, it was painful because she'd had so much work done. I felt like every time she talked, something was going to happen, something terrible, because mm. it was all so tight. And then you look at Judy Dent, she's just like, here I am. I'm just going to do my acting thing. And she's got gray hair and wrinkles, and she's amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, I agree with that. Yeah, you can kind of tell when somebody is trying to look younger. Mm-hmm. It always shows. I don't know why mm. they don't realize that and just move on and be who they are. It's, it's That's when you look at them and go, oh, the wrinkles are beautiful. I'll take that versus this super tight, shiny skin. Yeah. Somebody else had, and dyed hair mm-hmm. that someone's got. But right. um, anyway, so that's... You know, when yep. when do you adapt gracefully? And, of course, those actresses are at the top of their game. But <laughs> all the other ones had to go find something else to do. Yeah, yeah. Should we do a touch of trivia, or do we have more? Sure, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let's do a okay, touch so, of trivia. I'm fascinated yeah, by so, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that made this film, if you've watched it once to listen to this, uh, and you want to watch it again thinking deeper about it, as we've mentioned, there are um, real-life parallels. For instance, we mentioned the Waxworks. Those are real silent film stars who read the script and went, yeah, I'll be in this scene. I'll be considered a waxwork in order to make the point that's being made about Hollywood. And um, so there were all kinds of references all over the place to Gloria Swanson's real career. So as we've mentioned, the pictures are all publicity photos from her heyday. Her, Max, Eric von Stroheim, was a director who directed her in Queen Kelly. As I said, he had a big career. He was one of the big directors in the day. Hmm. Of course, no one's ever heard of him now. He and uh, Betty, I can't remember that, somebody, Olson, whoever, anyway, those two people were told to wear their real clothes for accuracy. So mm-hmm. all those suits he was wearing, those were his <laughs> as the butler. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. How about that? Um, when um, Norma goes to visit Cecil B. DeMille, several of his films she had been in, and he his pet name when he says young fellow, that was his pet name for her, really. Oh, wow. For Gloria Swanson, mm-hmm. because he said she was braver than any man. So um, when Norma says to the guard at Paramount Studios that without me, there wouldn't be any Paramount Studios, she was Paramount Studios star, top star, six years running. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she really kept it going. Um, I will say that (laughs) Max couldn't drive in real life. So whenever they showed him driving the car, they were being towed by a truck (laughs) with the cameras on the back of the truck. Mm. Um, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Yeah. Um, that is funny. Yeah. Um, one of the, a couple of the other things that I wanted to point out though, too, just about the filmmaking itself. 
is um, you could tell Billy Wilder's in there because of that crackling dialogue. Mm. You know, with, with Double Indemnity, he co-wrote it with um, Raymond Chandler. So you expect it. But this he co-wrote with his longtime, uh, longtime writing uh, pal. And, you know, it's just zipping. All these little lines like this. And um, one of the things that they did for the movie was in the way it was shot, they used that thing that they used in Double Indemnity where they wanted it to look old, so they throw dust in the air and then film after the dust had settled some. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it looked old. And they would also do the things, a lot of things, if you look at how staircases are used or shadows. And the big example I can think of is Betty has shown up and he has told her all the things in the most brutal way possible to drive her away. And they don't really explain why, except he's, of course, full of self, self-loathing. And I think he doesn't want to be the cause of breaking up her and Artie. But she's leaving. He's sending her off. And he turns to look back at the house. And we look and we see Norma looking over the balcony down at him. But the way that the gate works, it's bars. The gate's open. He's standing in the gate. Mm-hmm. But the top of it, we're seeing her through bars. So it's like she's the warden of the prison. She's the god there. She's overseeing and looking down on him through those bars, which are the prison that she's behind, Mm -hmm. that she's running. And he goes in and shuts it behind him, and you have the full view of it. He's back in prison. Hmm. Yeah, that's nice. That was nice. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So there are things like that. Right. You know, and that's, you know, Hollywood as a prison as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just Hollywood itself. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Being in that manufactured world mm-hmm. where nothing is real, because that's what she's done. Nothing is real in her house. It echoes the film sets she was on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. And the things they do with the music, too... Um, what they did with, uh, so the, the score won an Oscar. This is Franz Waxman, who, sit, who did so many wonderful film scores and really kind of taught us what movie music should sound like when he came and started his career. But when he says, when Max says the cameras have arrived and she's going to go mm-hmm. into her big scene, the high strings are quoting this chord from Richard Strauss's The Dance of the Seven Veils, which is from his opera Salome. Mm-hmm. So the script she wrote, she wanted yes. to play Salome. Right. And it's used when she goes down the stairs, and then it segues into his own Dance of the Seven Veils, the screen, the, the uh, film uh, music's mm. statement of that dance, of that music that he would play. So the whole way down, it's telling us how she's mentally getting struck by this. Hmm. And it's telling us what she thinks, essentially, on the inside. Very good. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just so artfully done. Mm-hmm. And they said um, that, and then they had to do these innovative shots, like when they show him floating in the pool at the beginning, and they have a shot of his face, of him floating, dead, and we can see him from the front and the policeman behind him. And there was no such thing as a waterproof camera at the time. Hmm. So what they did was have to put a mirror in the bottom of the pool so they could 
Well, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> through a mirror from mm-hmm. the bottom of the studio water tank. Wow. And from the right angle, mm-hmm. because they couldn't shoot through the water from the top, it wouldn't look right. They had to shoot from an angle down at the bottom to get the reflected image without going underwater. Hmm. Wow. So you don't, yeah, mm-hmm. you don't think of this as being innovative in that way, but it's doing that too. Mm-hmm. How about that? That's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Billy Wilder. Is your family still uh, working its way through Billy Wilder's stuff? Oh, we finished him a long time ago. Did you? Okay, very good. Yes, it was It was really, again, I recommend the experience. Right now we're going through William Wyler's movies. Okay. And he's not somebody whose name you recognize, but we watched, you and I watched Ben-Hur. Mm-hmm. He did yeah. that, which nice. was a real atypical movie for him. Um, but when you start from the beginning... You just start to learn about a director, and you can really admire the way the studio system put them into all these situations where they were having to be so flexible, but you can still see some of their trademarks. So now we'll be watching these movies, and I'll go, okay, it's another one in our William Wyler collection. Mm-hmm. And my mom will go, okay, so I'm looking for some staircases. Where are the mirrors? <laughs> where? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and then you think about Ben-Hur. Oh my gosh, there's several very effective things done from staircases. <laughs> they don't really have mirrors, but you know, and I haven't, we haven't watched it again as part of this series, but I'm really looking forward to this now kind of knowing what trademarks to look for from the director. Oh, how fun. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Billy Wilder was just so inventive and he could gather the best people around him. Mm, that's cool. You know, yeah. Yeah. We talked about double indemnity. And uh, some other ones I recognize, The Seven Year Itch, mm-hmm. and Some Like It Hot, and... The Apartment. And the Apartment, yeah. That's a really good one. And, um, yeah, I thought he did Sabrina. I don't know if that's on there or not. Oh, did he? Uh, I did maybe not. Maybe not. It doesn't, I don't no, see it. He, the front page I is another one we that. did. No, wait, did we do that well, one? Well, that's not him. We didn't do the front page, but that's not Billy Wilder. Okay, he did a version of the front page with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. That's not what we did. But he's got oh, a yeah. movie called The Front Page. Yeah, Yeah, but um, there's a movie that he did. Oh, crud. Let me just hold on. Let me get to the name of it. Because, of course, I can only remember one word of the title right now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I forgot he did The Major and the Minor. Mm. I Rose loves that movie. I cannot stand it. <laughs> <laughs> Ginger Rogers is playing like a 12-year-old, pretending to be a 12-year-old girl so she can get away with some thing. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, really? But um, what he did, he did Stalag 17. Most people have seen that. Mm. Uh, One that he did that a lot of people have not seen or even heard of is Ace in the Hole. He did that between Sunset Boulevard and Stalag 17, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. You want something else that you have to wait, watch some fun movies for Mm -hmm. a while after Mm -hmm. this, then watch Ace in the Hole, because it is definitely noir-style indictment looking at a certain kind of thing. Journalism, for one thing. Shock journalism. Mm. So it's very timely for today. It's on my list that someday we'll get to it if we keep going for another 12 years (laughs) (laughs) to fit it in. But, I mean, he just did so many different kinds of movies. 
um, Love in the Afternoon, a very light movie, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, just He would just jump around and do all kinds of stuff. He was so creative. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, and there's Sabrina is there. Humphrey Bogart, yeah. Audrey Hepburn, William Holden. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, William Holden again, playing a young playboy. Mm -hmm. I will say that after this, that was kind of the first time we went and dove into a few silent movies. Because when we found out that Gloria Swanson had been in all these famous movies directed by Max, we looked for Queen Kelly and a few Mm -hmm. of the other movies. And they're nothing that I remember distinctly, but they were all fascinating to watch. And to watch her as a young star being very effective at what she did. You could see why she was so popular. Mm. You know? Yeah, and he was great. a big flamboyant director, and you could see that, too. Uh-huh. It was well done. So, if anybody's interested, just kind of, you know, these things are out there to watch. Just to watch a little bit of it and see what it is that they're also commenting on. Because, mm. as we've already discussed, and that's why I wanted to watch it, everybody acted like, oh, silent movies, that's stupid. Well, we know from watching them recently that they were amazing, mm. some of them. Yeah. So, this is what she was bemoaning. But, you know, sometimes things move on. You can't go back. <laughs> that they were, yes. Yeah. But we still have them. Yes, we do. <laughs> we do, That's we do. Good. Yeah, you bet. Fact, fantastic. Yeah, but thank you for having us watch this. This was great. Oh, you're uh, very welcome. Thoroughly enjoyed that, yeah. Another... Another one uh, on the list for the pool room. But uh, yeah, it, you know, <laughs> I, I can certainly see watching this again. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's great. It's a very good movie. There's so much in it. And the more that you watch it, the more you're able to do things like watch, you know, Max through the movie or watch even all the modern scenes through the movie and see mm-hmm. how different they are, as you said, and but yet parallel, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So it's just it's it's a rich movie with a lot to it so cool glad you liked it yep certainly did certainly did okay so what do we have coming up now we have a book Mm -hmm. monsignor quixote oh by graham green i forgot (laughs) yes cool this is a light lighter book is it okay oh yeah believe it it or not i've got it on it's graham green Mm -hmm. but it's a light kind of a fun book i think yeah cool yeah. So. Cool. Does it have anything to do with Don Quixote, I imagine? It does. Excellent. The okay. little priest in this says Don Quixote is his ancestor. And everybody goes, but he was fiction. He's like, nonetheless, <laughs> he was still an ancestor. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's nice. so we have a journey with a faithful Sancho, uh-huh. who will surprise you, uh-huh. and a Rosinante to ride, and um, some parallel adventures. And you don't have to have read Don Quixote because... I've only ever tried to read it two or three times and never gotten very far. But mm-hmm. if you know the broad strokes, you're going to enjoy the parallels. Oh, very and good. at the same time, it's got some interesting stuff for us to think about. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Looking forward okay. to it. Well, <laughs> I do have something it on different. Hand, so, yeah, very good. good. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. We'll talk yeah. to you again soon. And enjoy you some Billy Wilder and some yes. Buster Keaton. Yes. <laughs> and maybe a little Queen Kelly while you're at it. Indeed, you bet. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.